Welcome to this episode of With Purpose. This particular episode features Daniel Petrie, and Daniel is really well known in Australia for his work in the tech sector, venture capital sector. Daniel's best known probably for a variety of different business connections from Microsoft through to Airtree Ventures. He's been very successful in that realm, but he's also had a very long-standing commitment to philanthropy and promotion of philanthropy here in Australia. And we're going to hear from Daniel about his life, the things that he believes in, some of his work experiences, and the third act of his life, as he calls it, in which he um, is creating a business called Start Giving to um, promote giving and particularly structured giving in the startup community that he knows so well. Really interesting um, to listen to Daniel and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Yeah, good, David. Actually, I'm, actually, I'm recovering from COVID, so um, hopefully my brain fog is not going to you know, cause too many issues with the uh, with this podcast. Well, I hope not. It probably brings our intellect a bit closer together, so it's probably going to help. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Narrow the gap a little bit. I could I could kind of kick off with a description of you and talk about things like tech, but how how, how do you describe yourself? Uh, I wouldn't entitle in titles. I would say uh, I, I I describe myself as lucky and thoughtful, and but I I don't mean thoughtful in any kind of higher level of intellect or wisdom. I just think my general approach is to try and think things through, whether it's personal or work. And that's really helped me, helped me deal with some, you know, some childhood issues and family matters along the way and with work. And then I just feel incredibly lucky that I had a skill set that at this point in the, you know, the life cycle of humanity was, was a, a skill set that could be monetized. And I oh. could then, you know, have financial success, which has then helped me move into sort of my philanthropic work too. I've had some um, really intelligent people on the podcast i'm interested do you think what you just said about yourself about being thoughtful do you think that you've that is, is that a skill that you've really been born with or do you think that you've more so honed it and developed it over your life i i think to to, to a great extent i think i started with a with a curiosity i think i was born with curiosity and i was born with this sort of sense of trying to look beyond the immediate. And, and really, to be honest, it started because I had a pretty average childhood, um, not a particularly um, happy family home. Mm. So part of my dealing with that was to try and think through how, you know, how can I move my life forward a bit and not just be caught in this sort of not, not particularly um, happy environment. My, my sister, sadly, wasn't able to break that uh, mold and she developed anorexia and a whole bunch of mental health issues as a function of the environment. So I think it started there. And then really the next major breakthrough was when I was working with Bill Gates and uh, in terms of this concept of being thoughtful. And the approach of Microsoft in those days when I was both running, well, running a country, then running a product group working for Bill and then running a region of I think nine or 10 countries, uh, the whole approach of Microsoft was to really think through the problem or the business plan or the product plan but i mean not really like have a lot of data a lot of thought and the theory was if you really thought something through well even if it went wrong you would know why it went wrong and so your your sort of recovery acts or your recovery plans wouldn't need to be 180 degrees from your prior because chance are one or two data points didn't flow out and so you could then make a tangential change 
So by being thoughtful and really applying intellect and thought to a problem resulted in less failures and also the ability to correct direction if you needed to. And that was very different to what I noticed in Australia, where it was more about let's do something than think about it afterwards. Yeah. Um, whereas Microsoft, and the other part of that, which I should maybe mention, was that if you did the work, the, th the, the thoughtful work in your plans, and then you presented it to, when I was a country manager, presenting it to the operating committee of Microsoft, so Bill Gates and Steve Baum or whatever, and when I was a product VP, it would be a similar group. If you thought it through, you could answer any question they would throw at you because you thought it through and you had the data. And so those sessions were really, I found them stressful, but pleasant. Stressful because you're on your game, but pleasant because your plans were being tested and you knew you thought it through well. Where you came a cropper was, if, if you, and sadly, I'm happily, I should say it wasn't me in, in, in these situations. If you went into them ill-prepared, then it was a bloodbath. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, so it was, and, and rightly so, you're wasting resources, time, et cetera. So that really then, I guess, uh, amplified this idea of you got to think things through. Now, you might be wrong, but again, your charts are not going to be 180 degrees wrong. You'll be slightly wrong because you thought about it. And so that's been something I've applied in every situation in my life um, going forward. Okay, thanks. Uh, I, want, I, I want to spend more time, but a little bit later, probably, on uh, career aspects like that you touched on there. But uh, one of the things that I'm interested in when I look at you is I, I've known you more from the philanthropic community and, and that side of things uh, and, and know you more by reputation on the business side. But you're unusual, uh, at least in the Australian context, in the idea that you, and these are my words, of course, um, my perceptions, you've spent a whole career dedicated um, to business and growing businesses and growing profit. And you would have necessarily been surrounded by some pretty hard-headed people and some, some greedy people. Yeah. Um, and yet you've kind of not just emerged, but throughout, I was saying that from what I've seen, um, over an extended period of time, you for philanthropy and being a decent person is has been very important to you. Where does that come from, and how did that develop in you? That 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 um, feeling that it's really important to be a decent person and to to help address issues that you know maybe social or environmental ills. Uh, so look, I I would be I'd be, be incorrect to say I got it from my family because I, I have an immense respect for my parents and their work ethic, but philanthropy or giving back wasn't part of their makeup. And not that they were wealthy, by the way, they weren't, they were normal human beings. Um, but I think where, where it really came from was when I went to America at age 30 and to work to be a product vice president, one of five product vice presidents at Microsoft, uh, working for Bill and spending a lot of time with Bill and his mum. And uh, uh, Mary Gates, his mum was a great philanthropist in her own right in, in the Seattle area. And was chair of United Way, which United Way, which is a, a big philanthropic organisation. And her, I'll, I'll paraphrase her, what she would say, but her, her phrase, her phrase, or the phrase she would use a lot would be that if you've been fortunate in life, it is your responsibility, not your choice, to give back. And that just, for whatever reason, that just really resonated with me. Um, that 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 giving back to the community 
to the world shouldn't be a function of choice if you've been lucky, if you've been for it should be like, that's kind of the deal. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the great karmic deal that you've ended up with a bit more of this money stuff in your pocket than somebody else. But you can't pretend you've worked any harder than anybody else or you're smarter than anybody else. It's, there's a whole degree of luck in that. Yeah. And if you've ended up with that pile of gold, you should give some of it back. So that's where sort of the, the sort of major uh, point came home to me was, and then watching Bill talk about it and talk about dedicating his life to philanthropy once he was done with Microsoft and as he has done, right? Yeah. Uh, and then meeting Warren Buffett, which I did through Bill and hearing him talk about the lucky gene pool again, which is a similar thematic, right? It's that, and Warren Buffett is like, you know, he's part of a lucky gene pool. He was born with these skills that he could, he could price, misprice securities. Mm -hmm. And he lived in America, he got a good education. He could have easily grown up in part of West Africa where there wasn't access to education, let alone, you know, funds to invest in securities. And so I guess those two, uh, well, Mary, Bill and, and Warren and their approach to giving really resonated. And I came back to Australia uh, in the, uh, my early thirties with that, with that sort of, this is what you should do. Now, I'd worked out when I got back to Australia that, that I wasn't someone who, who would be very useful going into the philanthropic sector 100%. I'm, I'm too impatient. Uh, I'm a bit too metric focused at times. So I think what I worked out early on was the best thing I can do is do my day job, but then use the proceeds of my day job to try and do good. Yeah. Uh, and, as I've, you know, and, and as I've grown older, I think, I think even more broadly about it, I've got this thing recently where i say the last 10 years where i try to think of who can i help today i don't mean just in the when i hire employees i mean but you know it could be anything as like helping an old lady across the road to stopping as i've done and watch someone have to change a tire stop and pull over and help them change a tire to buy a car for someone who in, in our fat you know not a family but our group of friends where they've got a child who is driving long distances to work and they're in this crappy car that if they get hit by a mosquito at speed, they're gonna die. So it could be anything, it could be anything on the scale, but trying to do something good for someone every day as well as the philanthropic stuff. So yeah. Well, well, it, I, was, I was with you right until the very end there until you said as well as the philanthropic stuff, because what I was gonna say was that is philanthropy, that's altruism, isn't it? That's philanthropy, you know, the love of was mankind, now, you know, humankind. I mean, trying to do those good acts, we do get suckered into here, particularly in the philanthropic community in Australia, the idea that philanthropy means you have to be rich, set up a foundation and give, you know, only to charities that have got the recipient status and claim a tax deduction. So it, that, that to me is philanthropy. Um, I want to go back a little bit and get into uh, where the rubber hits the road around your, your beliefs. I had... A similar experience, apart from the fact that I wasn't hanging around with uh, the Buffets and the Gates, but it, I had a similar experience in the sense that I, I worked in America and had a realization that it was part of it was an expectation of part of your life responsibility that you would help the community. To me, it was almost like the Americans that I worked with; their lives were divided between uh, family, work, and community, and you're expected to contribute in all three areas. But it doesn't feel that way here, no. and I'm going to quote something I read in preparation that you have written yourself which is that um, wealthy people should accept that they've been lucky and have probably worked hard but don't deserve the wealth they've accumulated that not everyone agrees with that view so tell me more about that 
Well, I think it's just factually correct. I think I don't think it's it's something that can anyone can debate. You could have, you know, three people that have worked incredibly hard in their life. One's a school teacher, one's a cardiothoracic surgeon, work at Westmead Children's Hospital, operating on babies' hearts in the womb, and one's a successful investment banker working at any of the major banks that some that you've worked out, some that I've worked with. You know, it is hard to suggest that the third in that trio has worked any harder or given up any more in their life than the previous two and yet has ended up probably with significantly more money than any of the other two uh, and it, on intellectual capability it would be hard to argue that uh, anyone in the investment banking field or financial services or any area where you know a lot of money's made is any smarter than some you know pediatric cardiac sur cardiothoracic surgeon so i think whichever vector you take whether it's on intellect which is kind of genetic anyway, so you can't really take claim to intellect, um, or uh, the, 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 the application of work ethic. I don't think either of them suggests that wealth is a function of hard work. Yeah. You know, wealth is a function of, of course, hard work, but luck plays an enormous role. Luck in, as we touched on earlier, luck in terms of your gene pool, what skills you're born with, and luck in terms of opportunities that come your way. Now, sure, you've made choices that have happened, that have helped uh, drive the path to success. But I, I find it interesting when, when people try to defend that view, that, oh, no, no, you know, I deserve this money, I've, I've earned it. I go, well, that, that's just ridiculous, you know. Uh, you can't draw a straight line that you've, earned, you've actually earned that money. What is your comparison set that suggests you've earned it compared to a teacher, a dentist, a doctor, a, you know, whatever, a construction worker, whatever you want to talk about. So and I think this, what's interesting here, I have noticed a difference. You know, I've been doing, been trying to promote philanthropy for nearly 30 years now since we got back in the, in the early 90s. And I've funded research into it. I've done talks, I've written. And generally speaking, I think uh, it's fair to say that philanthropy from the old white guy set hasn't moved that much. Uh, interestingly, if you look at the BRW top 200, just as a data point, the entry level of BRW top 200 five years ago versus now, so, you know, the poorest schmuck. Well, yeah. it's 3X. Mm. You know, to get into the BRW top 200 now, you've got to be around 600 million, and it was around 200 million five years ago. Um, and the top is the same, it's about 3X. Yeah. And so the amount of money is about 3X, yet philanthropy's grown about 25% in that period. So mm -hmm. wealth has clearly outstripped philanthropic giving. Uh, but what I've noticed, and this is part of what we're doing with Stark Giving is that Generally speaking, you've got to be careful with generalizations, but generally speaking, people in this community that I know well, the, the startup tech technology innovation community have a very different view on wealth. Very different view. They, they firstly, they're more socially progressive than the old white guy said, but when it comes to wealth, I've not yet met one person of the hundreds of founders and executives I've met who would argue that they deserve the money they've got. Now they like the money they've got, They'll accept the money they've got. Um, they'll have nice lifestyles, but I've never heard any of them, whether they're billionaires or people who end up with 10 or 20 million, have said they deserve that money. Um, okay. It's a very different, it's a very different sort of perspective. So there's look, there's the concept of deserving or, or not deserving. Then then what about the concept of around obligation, obligation to others that, that are not as lucky and um yeah, uh, perhaps need assistance. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, if you if you think of anthropological terms, you go back to the tribe, which was the sort of first aggregation of humans together. 
it only worked because everyone gave to each other. You know, people had shared taking after the children while men went hunting or whatever it was, cooking, hunting, protection. It only worked because everyone looked after each other. It's only when you get to this sort of inverted commas civilized society, these large scale cities where you can live your life and tell everyone else to go fuck themselves basically. And I think, so it's not a natural trait that we've been brought into. It's something that we've, we've allowed to occur. And my, my actual sense is that everyone has a responsibility to look after and give back to everybody else in some form, whatever your capacity is, be it time or be it money. And, and it should be within your capacity. So by that, I mean, if you're sitting on a billion dollars, it is not good enough for your giving back to be helping an old lady cross the road. No, that's, that's, you can do that. That's great. You know, well done, but you should also be allocating a significant portion of your wealth to philanthropic work in a, in a larger scale philanthropic work. But the concept of giving back and looking after each other is one we've kind of lost a bit of. Um, and not only that, we've, the, the worst part, if I could go on this tangent is that we've, We've allowed ourselves to celebrate wealth uh, and not question either the source of wealth or the use of wealth. And I think that's a bit sad that we, we, we don't look at source of wealth and think, well, did that person earn that money in a fair and ethical way? Or did they do it by manipulating others, by manipulating governments, by producing products that weren't that good for the, for the world? And then how they use that wealth. That's probably my, my biggest concern is that we celebrate these billionaires as, as sort of gurus and we don't any, in any general form expect them to even give back a proportion of what they've earned to help others who are far less fortunate than them. And so what do you think in trying to sell this message, what do you think sells best? Is it you've got an obligation, it's just something you should do, or is it more enlightened, appeal to an enlightened sense, you know, of, of self-interest? Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, do, what are you finding? Is well, I, think, I think you're right. I think the, the stick doesn't work. Um, well, that's a, that, I think we should break that down. So saying to rich people, you should give, you should give doesn't work, um, uh, sadly. <laughs> uh, you know, if you think of another stick, which is, which is interesting, actually, if you look at the OECD countries as a group, um, pretty much only one of the developed OECD countries that doesn't have an inheritance tax is Australia. And surprise, 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 Australia has one of the lowest giving rates in the world. And, and in America, when they were going to get rid of inheritance tax, it was a large philanthropist who argued and said, don't do this. You will break what is a virtuous cycle, which is rich people who aren't attuned to giving think, well, why would I give it to the government when I die? I might as well give it earlier. So yeah. the stick of inheritance tax is actually something that works and we should think about in Australia. I don't think we'll ever have that debate again, sadly. And I think it'll be very hard to bring it back in Australia, although we should. So leaving that to the side, yeah. I think the biggest motivator, and I'm sure you've had this experience uh, and I, I have in spades, is the guilty pleasure of giving. The, 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 the reality is I get more joy and I have for years out of seeing the impact of the... Uh, donations we make and and a bit of intellectual effort as well um, and not, not to a grand scale I mean there's some grand things we've done some small things just watching the impact of that gives me far more joy than anything I've done in my work career and I, I say that honestly I also say that a bit sort of um, a, a bit humbly because 
it kind of it's a guilty pleasure you feel you, you, I guess you don't feel you should have the right to feel so joyful when you're giving money to help people who are less fortunate but that's the truth and everyone I've helped sort of move down the path of giving has has had that same that same experience of it just feels so good to help someone out and if you can do with a bit of money and materially help someone or a community out you get this immense sense of joy one of the things that's tough i think in philanthropy is uh because you don't have maybe the single kind of metric of of um of the dollar say as you would in business is how to work out where you can have the greatest impact and yes. then how do you how do you um measure that you've chosen again feel free to you know put more flesh on this bone but you've chosen to focus on the alleviation of suffering two questions one one why versus all the other things that you could do uh and two um how do you then apply your your business brain to that problem uh, particularly when you start thinking about uh metrics i find it hard to put my head on my pillow at night and think of all the people suffering in the world to be brutally honest and mm -hmm. And the only way I can make myself feel okay about that is to know that I'm trying to alleviate suffering for some people. And because suffering is, is loss of opportunity is terrible. Suffering is worse. Real suffering is worse. Whether you're in pain or you're suffering in some form is, is the sort of higher order, I think. So that's where that vector came from. When we talk about, uh, we've got two, two advisory board members on, our, on Start Giving. One is uh, Bill Gates, who, who I mentioned before, who's obviously well known as the greatest philanthropist ever to have lived. And the other one's Peter Singer, who's an Australian uh, ethicist. Uh, it's funny because I was going to say about the drowning child, but you, 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 uh, you carry on. Yeah, so Pete, well, exactly a drowning child, Peter Singer, um, who, wrote that, who wrote a number of great books, but the, the Life You Can Save is the most recent great book and talks about it. And he was really the father of effective altruism, which his thing is, you know, you should spend your money where you can have the greatest impact. So he would be in favor of uh, doing things where a dollar goes the furthest. Now, the problem, I think, I, I agree generally with his view, but if someone wants to give money to the arts and not to saving kids in Africa, you can't stop them doing that, nor should you dissuade them because arts do bring joy to people and they do create a, a better society. So I, I agree with the premise about trying to be impactful and trying to do the most you can do, but I'm not, I don't agree that it's in the absence of doing other things in the philanthropic sector. So our view from a start giving perspective is if you're giving money to a DGR status or a donor gift recipient charity, which means someone in government says, these people are a charity, then we're okay with it. In terms of metrics though, I am pretty hardcore on wanting to know that we're spending well. Uh, so I think it's important to me that you spend well and you look for outcomes. Now the outcomes may not be what you'd hope for, but you'll learn from that and then you can deploy better in the future. So I think it's important that when we allocate money to philanthropy, whether it's $20 or 20,000 or 20 million, you do think about who's getting it. And are you providing oxygen to a group that should be living on? Because the sad reality of the not-for-profit sector is the failure rate is very low. And it's low because there's always someone who's giving them a bit more money to keep them alive. And in reality, we should have a lot higher failure rate of charities so the money gets concentrated on those who are moving the dial in the particular, particular area, be it suffering or, or, or be it opportunity.
I'm fascinated by the idea that you've got two advisors. One's Peter Singer, because I always think about him. Um, you, you've mentioned his books, but I think about the the drowning child story, which talks about, about talks to the idea of alleviation of suffering, if, if only we can be conscious of it. Um, and then you've got Bill Gates. And I was preparing for this chat. One of the things I read was that you said you don't want to go into a meeting with Bill Gates with ideas without data. Yes. Right? So the data is super important. Uh, and it obviously informs your your giving. Yet we still lack uh, an awful lot of, of, of data that would be very useful to us here. Yeah. Are you focused on trying to rectify that, or how how do you see that we increase the quantity and quality of the data that's available to people that want to make decisions to make an impact on people's lives? Yeah, it's a good, really good question, David. And, and I, th I think that the, there's a great uh, TED talk on this, by the way. But um, I forget the guy's name. I'll I'll get it. I'll send it to you. But uh, the the big the reason we have low data in a lot of these areas is because funders are not prepared for the charity to have a high admin fee. Yeah. Every funder says, hey, I want 90 cents in every dollar I give to go to the actual cause, which means 10 cents in the dollar or 15 cents in the dollar can be the maximum you can use for running a charity, for fundraising, for doing research into your outcomes. Hmm. Now, Blind Freddy will tell you, well, that you clearly can't do that well with 10 cents in the dollar. So, You've got to be prepared to allocate it may be 25 or 30 cents in the dollar or even a little higher in particular charities is the right amount of money for them to spend if they're trying to provide data resources to really understand better how to be efficient deliverers of a of an intervention in that area. And you've got to be comfortable with that. Now I'm not saying you just you just blithely throw money around and that every charity deserves 30%. But but what I am saying is when you go to look at a charity, you want to talk to them, well, how do we get better data on, on, the, on your interventions, on whether these interventions are working or not? Either way, it's good to find out. And how do we develop new models of testing your interventions? Well, you probably need a bit of money over here in the research data pile, which is probably additional to what you need to administer the fund, the, 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 the um, charity, and do fundraising. So it does come down to the funding community being comfortable with not as high a proportion of every dollar going to the actual cause in the knowledge that you're building capacity in that charity to do better work over the long term. That's 100% where it comes from. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. But uh, and, and the point is, the key point probably is that the, who pays? Where's the money going to come from? Well, it's the funder, right? Yeah. But I don't think that um, is a view that's widely held. And in fact, I, I would say, I don't know whether you agree at all, but I would say the average Australian um, philanthropist it's actually quite lazy. I talk about it often as a person on their philanthropic journey, setting off in, say, the Blue Mountains and finishing at Central Station as the ultimate destination. Most people are happy to get off at, you know, Penrith or, or Blackheath or something like that. You've sent the checks out and you kind of thought who you want to support going forward. And that makes you feel good. Um, but usually there's not a lot more in terms of due diligence and work and research yeah. and thoughtfulness. And that just leaves people... Um, often with a lot of preconceived ideas around what a charity should be, how it should operate, the fact yes. that overheads are bad, you know, without further examination. So that's that's a really big problem. Do you see, um, moving now, kind of maybe the conversation towards your third act and the people you kind of, you're working with on the philanthropic front, do you see that those attitudes are different in the startup, the tech um, community, the kind of people that you hope will drive philanthropy um, going forward? Yeah, let me jump back to the point you made because I think it's a really good point. I think I think the 
the the fund is the ultimate arbitrators of you know how much money goes in. But I do think a lot of charities also need to up their game in the sense they need to engage with philanthropists or funders, donors, for better word, donors more, and not just say, thanks for the money, see you later. Now, sure, if you've, if you've given 50 bucks, you can't expect a lot of interaction with the charity. That's not fair on the charity. If you're in a check for five grand, 10 grand, 20 grand or more, then I think it's not unreasonable for the charity to actually engage with you on where that money went, what they've, what, what they've done with that money and how it's impacted their work. I don't think it's right that they just go, thanks, David. By the way, will you donate next year? And a lot of charities do that. Now, again, that's a bit of, there's a bit of funding required within the charity exactly. to do that. So it's a bit of a virtuous cycle, which is funders need to give a bit more that goes into the broad bucket of administration, including research and engagement with funders. And then, but then they also deliver on that. And I think, I think if both parties are prepared to work down that path, and I do that with the most ones we work with, and it works super well. They know that I'm super curious and, and want to know that we're doing good work. And I'm also happy to be told, well, that thing you, you funded didn't work. Okay, that's fine. Great. We now know. Let's move on. It's not seen as a failure. It's seen as a learning ex exercise. Charities are very different from businesses, but when people look at businesses and then they look at charities, they forget everything they've learned in business. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So there's, we can have a whole conversation about that. I want to come to start giving because this is part of your third act. Feel free to explain your third act in more detail as you as you see it. But you, you start in the business, start giving, and you want to basically foster giving, um, particularly through um, the startup community and the business community. And um, you you tell me more about it in your own words. Sure. So I, I guess it is my third act. I'm 63 this year, and I figure. You know, I don't have many more highly productive years, to be perfectly honest. So how do I want to spend it? Then if I was going to be honest with myself, the legacy I'd love to live now is being able to try and move the dial on giving in Australia. So that's where it came from. And then it was, well, how do I do it? And my thesis was that, as we've touched on, that the uh, people in my ecosystem, in the innovation ecosystem, startup ecosystem, are different from other wealthy people. Um, firstly, they don't recognize they've got wealth. They might be still paying themselves 70 grand a year, but they're sitting on $20 million worth of paper in their startups. They don't think of themselves as wealthy, but they are more socially progressive. They don't like inequality. They do want to help create a better society. These are not foreign concepts to them. So that you're starting with a more malleable group, I suspect. And, and what we're trying to do at Start Giving is to help help them realize and to use the poorest sort of person we would target is target sounds terrible, but someone who's maybe giving, I'd be giving nothing, but has capacity to give 25 K a year, or they've got, they've got uh, 20 million in paper wealth. They could move a million across into a path, which would give 50 grand a year. So it's between 25, 50 grand a year. They can see themselves giving either through this sort of structured approach or through some other sort of income approach. Generally speaking, it'll be more structured approach because of, Income's not a thing that startup people have. And helping them see that a few things. Firstly, they can start this journey um, early. So if, well, I guess if we think about it in five stages. Why? Well, why should you give? We've touched on. Australia's a very low philanthropic nation. Our tax rates are very low as well. There's lots of suffering in the world. Why now? Well, because you can start making an impact now. You don't have to wait till you're um, much older to, to start giving. You can learn about what you care about and how that works through your sort of MVP on your journey, which I've mentioned before. So it's that sort of idea, the how you do it, maybe through income, but probably structure giving, we can help them through that process of 
how to get that set up and who to use for administrator and how do you deal with the ATO and then the sort of where, how much and where we can help them there. Now, um, we, won't, we don't take any fees. It's important I should probably mention that Start Giving is 100% funded by me. Um, I'll, fund, I'll fund it for the next three to four years. It'll cost between three and four million dollars. So I didn't want any of the colouring, oh, Daniel's making money or Daniel's doing administration. No, the administration will be done by APS or someone like that who's very experienced at that. Uh, we don't take, we won't push out the charities I care about on you. It's a 100% advisory service. It will help concierge people through, I've never thought about this. How do I do it in a time efficient way? How do I find uh, a charity that, that in the area I care about that's efficient? What sort of reporting should I expect back? How do I deal with the ATO? Except all that stuff we try and compress and help them through. And so the two, the two sort of outcomes I'm looking for, uh, the light on the heel at the end is that anyone in our ecosystem who ends up with 20 million bucks of paper money immediately sets up a path to start that journey. Uh, and remembering a million of stock going across to a PAF means as a company does well, so does the PAF. You're not trading any future giving. So that, that just happens because you go, all my mates have done it. Everyone I know has done it. So there's no need for a start giving. That, that just happens. It's part of the culture of our ecosystem. The shorter term target is in the next two to three years. We want to try and get one to 200 PAFs set up by tech founders or execs. Yep. As they, and it, I should mention, it's more important to me that we have, let's say, 100 PAFs with a million dollars in them than one PAF with $400 million in it. Because I think it's important to have 100 flowers blooming, 100 people with different interests, 100 people talking to other people about what they care about and what they find interesting. I don't, it'd be great to have a few more $100 million ones, of course, but to create a community and a culture of giving, we need that interconnection. So what we are going to have is a lot of, events where we're going to bring together people who are giving and donors to talk to others. We found that a lot of these startup founders and execs don't go to the traditional uh, philanthropic gatherings because they're not their, their people. They're more the older white guys. They want to talk to people of their ilk. So, you know, obviously with Peter Singer and with Bill and others, we're going to have events and whether it be they in person or, or Zoom, and, and more smaller meetups where people can talk about the issues they're dealing with in a sort of pretty secure environment, safe environment. So yeah, it's, it, it, there is a real goal here. Let's move the dial and try, and try and help create a real culture of giving in the innovation community. That's the goal. Right. And it's a fantastic goal. And I hope it works really, really well. Um, and I'm a believer in the foundation model because a, a core part of your um, your own model is that you're going to help people structure their philanthropy, which yes. essentially means a foundation. Yes. But I do, and I, so I, I, I am 100%, um, you know, a believer in the, in the use of foundations and their value financially and otherwise, and yes. particularly over time uh, through investment and generation of additional returns in a similar way that people's superannuation works in that sense. However, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second, just interested in your view. That there is an idea that wealthy people put put in money into foundations that, that they ultimately have a high degree of control over, continues to kind of concentrate power. And there's a power imbalance there where they retain control and a small number of wealthy people are making decisions about where a large amount of money should go and how that should how that should flow to the community. 
I would imagine if you're going to have really good conversations, you're going to interrogate issues like that, and people are going to want to be, to use your word before, thoughtful about it. So how do you personally think about that? So the first issue, I think, is any large uh, philanthropic organisation which has a lot of money to, to allocate, whether it's a Ramsey Foundation or the Canva Foundation or others, um, needs to do it in a way where they're not telling people what to do. They're more thoughtful about the area and querying how best to do it. I think the Gates Foundation is a better example where they very, very rarely, if ever, I think would ever go in and tell someone what to do. It's more they try and understand the issue, understand what needs to happen and then help fund that, that, that work. So I think that first level, which is you're not there to tell a charity what to do. You're there to understand what they're doing and how you can help them. Now, you might help them through thoughtful query, which helps them think about their models better, but it's not your job, nor should you try and tell them what to do, first level. Second level is there will be concentration in behind, behind areas. You know, it would be terrible if all the largest foundations in Australia all decided to fund breast cancer research. That'd be a bad thing. I think generally speaking, that's not happening, that even with the billionaires, we're seeing this dispersion of, of interests and ideas. So I think that's okay at this point in time. And I would then promote the idea that everyone looks for newer things to do and not just attach yourself to, oh, the Ramsey Foundation is doing this, I'll go and do that with them. Um, you might do it because it's a, there is a true alignment, but don't do it so you can hang out with the Canva Foundation people or do it because you can hang out with the Ramsey or the Gates or whatever. Do it because it's the right thing to do. So again, thoughtfulness is a recurring theme. Um, you've had uh, a life where you've interacted with an awful lot of thoughtful, intelligent people and I know they come from different backgrounds so uh, with some of those people in mind and I'm thinking about Nepalese monks and other people as well here not, not just um, Gates Buffett's and the likes um, what, what kind of stands out for you in terms of the real lessons you've learned in your career and in your you know your broader life Daniel? Um, so I think I, I, I'd say there have been some uh, major points of learning um, I did not want to replicate my childhood with my children. So I made a conscious effort to try and give them the unconditional love that I never felt. Um, so, and other things as well in terms of being present and a bunch of other things. So I think that that was a important, thoughtful, if I can use that term, decision I made. Now, it flew against my experience set. And often we, 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 we act in the way we've experienced. So I, I had to try and create a new model um, to try and give them a better life in the sense of them moving forward with their lives with a better experience set. So that was super important to me. And I think I've done a pretty okay job at that. Time will tell if any of them end up as axe murderers or something, but uh, so far so good. The, the, the second thing was a negative experience, which was working in a company, a tech company where the, the CEO was a bully, uh, aggressive, nasty, just sales oriented, never thinking about planning, it was horrible horrible experience and that that made me really focus on the, on the whole idea of not wanting to ever um be in that situation again and never and as a boss never creating that sort of environment for the people i work with then it was bill gates i think in terms of i learned more from bill not a, obviously he's smart all of, but just in terms of how to think about uh problems how to think about philanthropy how to you know a whole bunch of things i think i think you know i probably we had kids before he did, so he probably and I talked a lot about children and the joy they bring, and hopefully I've helped him in that journey with his his kids. But he was incredibly 
helpful. You know, I've had other negative experience working with Kerry Packer. I think it was negative because he was a very damaged soul, to be fair to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, that's a regressive bullying thing. I didn't work for him per se. We had a fund that was funded by him. And the other really important, I think, was uh, Matthew Ricard, who is a Tibetan monk, who was actually a biologist, who became a Tibetan monk, who wrote a book called Happiness, which is not about joyful happiness. It's more about trying to seek this sense of contentment in a, you know, a world full of where, where your ego and things are pulling you every which way. It's, a really, it's my favourite book ever. I, I read it probably once or twice a year. I always get something more out of it but I'd recommend it to anyone that it's a book worth um, reading about how to think about life. So they'd be the summary. Yeah, fantastic. Is there anything else you want us to know about um, Start Giving or, or a message you want to get out there for people that might be interested to, to hear more? Well, I, I, thank you. Yeah, I think, look, I think, you know, we're, we're just putting up the new website in the next hour. So Start Giving. We were startupgiving.com.au. We will be startgiving.com.au um, for a bunch of reasons. But I, I think anyone who's, who's thinking, who's in this space, who's thinking about... Um, starting their MVP of their philanthropic journey and that they uh, think they have the capacity either now or in the short term to be donating of the order of 25 to 50K, which really talks about how much you put into a PATH, right? Really, it's about a million dollars going into a PATH that, that we'd love to talk to you. And, or we've got an exit coming up and we can help you. Again, we've no, charge no fees. We have no biases. We're really there to try and streamline the thinking. My, I'm very lucky that my uh, CEO, Antonia Ruffle, comes from APS. She yeah. was the founding CEO there for nine and a half years. She knows more about structural philanthropy than probably anyone else at the at the actual hard edge of it. Um, so she's joined me. So we ha- I think we have between my my experiences and her, we have a, hopefully a lot to offer um, fledgling donors, philanthropists. And, yeah. and thank you for your time, Dave. I really appreciate. Uh, yeah, no, no, I've yeah. I've known Antonia for many years as well. I know that anyone that goes and talks to you both will will uh, be in safe hands. And I think. You know, really, really genuinely wish you great success because your success here, you know, be personally satisfying to you and Antonia. But, you know, it would make a big difference to the country because it would create um, that culture. And um, then, of course, that that will be to the benefit of the, of, of the country and, and well beyond our borders as well. Um, so hopefully you can create a huge amount of impact through it. And anything you do um, will um, will help, of course. So, um you know, I hope you have real success and very best of luck with it. Thanks, Thanks David. And look forward to catching up and we'll update you on the journey. Yeah, all the best. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codacapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and non-profit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.